Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full room here with me this morning. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Brad. And Philip. Hey, Brad. Bob. Good morning. And Dustin. Good morning, Brad. We're happy to have everybody here because we're going to talk about several topics that are relevant to you. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the information that came out of the Economic Research Service about how farm size is changing. We're also going to talk about early pregnancy check and why you would or wouldn't do that. And then we've got a great listener question on embryo transfer versus artificial insemination. Before we get into those topics, a couple things to, to let you know about. One, we just started a new Ask the Experts. It's on Ag Today. So there's a five-minute section that comes out every Wednesday on that program. We're going to put some of our listener questions there. We'll also have some on our podcast for more in-depth discussions. But if you have a question or a topic you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Guys, one of the things that I heard very recently was the things from the 70s are coming back. Fashions, fads, music. I want to know which of those are you most excited about having back that we had in the 70s. Brian? I, I was barely around for the 70s, so... Um, I know it would be your first time. Yeah. You could get a Stretch Armstrong. I mean, I was in diapers and probably... in near future i'll probably be back in them but no <laughs> i i don't have any uh i don't have any uh 70s trends sorry uh well so i'm the only one that actually was in high school in the 70s in this room here so there are so i mean how many there's so many things the 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 fashion sense the music i mean i think you could just go with about anything the highly processed food the the absolutely flammable clothing i this it just goes on and on Dustin Phillip. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add to this conversation. You sound in the same boat as Brian. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about a mullet, you know. So. See, uh, Those are kind of, they're back. So. I don't think they ever in, went away. I was going to say, in some places, they never went away. So I don't know that I have much. I'm probably even younger than Phillip. So, uh, but I did on Saturday, and I was bored. So I, uh, this might be more of an 80s, but kind of the mustache. I tried that, and uh, yeah, my kids wouldn't let me. They wouldn't leave the house with me. Wouldn't let you leave <laughs> the house. Life, yeah. yeah. So that could fall in the seventies. <laughs> I tried it; didn't quite work as planned. I noticed that you had shaved, so you had a mustache for Saturday night and all day Sunday <laughs> and all day Monday until we went out to uh, watch fireworks. <laughs> That's a long time for wearing a mustache until <laughs> you had to go in public. Basically, basically, you're right. <laughs> So, so Dustin, one of, one of the things that, that we were going to talk about, the Economic Research Service does some really good stuff, and, and they've come out with some new information, and, and it really is following the same trend that has over time, where they looked at farms, the number of farms, they looked at average farm size, and the amount of land included in farms, and, the, and those trends have been changing over the last let's say 40 years compared to where, where they were before that but the last few years very similar process what do you what do you see when you look at some of this information so when i look at the the stuff that the usda economic research service puts out you know there's not a lot of change in the last what since 1970 so about 50 years now you know the average farm size went from 400 acres in 1970s, early 70s to 445 acres. So we're talking 45 acres over 50 years. Not a lot of change. Yes, it is going up slightly. Yes, the total number of farms have been going down. Land size or land total land in ag production is is relatively flat uh, across you know since the 70s. So not a lot of big changes. It would be my uh, I guess my takeaway message. So even though mechanization has changed and technology has changed, the big drop 
in farm numbers and the big increase in farm size really occurred with the introduction of tractors. And, you know, at, at first those were relatively small tractors, but it still drove a huge change in the demographics. And then since that time, we've we kind of went through a, a period of larger tractors, able to do more acres per hour, those types of things. But it's but it but it hasn't changed as much in the last fifty years as it did over about fifty years. Wouldn't you say that is no, what's driving that? Yeah, no, I would agree. And that was when I when I looked at that figure, my first question I asked myself is why? You know, what is the change of that? We and on our next episode we'll talk a little more about the U.S. Uh, and the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, and their investment in research and development, which would include tractors and things like that. But I think, yeah, we'll, we'll dive a little deeper in our next uh, podcast on technology, which would come back and tie into this. You know, one of the things that a little bit confuses me, just thinking about the farms that I know around home in Illinois growing up and in the last 20, 30 years, the increase in size of only 45 acres doesn't really match my reality of what I see in farms back home. So is that is that because we've got a lot of, I'm going to say, hobby farms or ranchettes or something like that that are being counted as farms? Uh, yeah, so I, 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 that would be my guess. Without digging into it just by looking at the figure, I would say yes. And it probably goes back to what is the definition of a farm. The way the USDA defines it, I think it's... What's it? Sell more than a thousand dollars an acre, or a thousand dollars of have more than a thousand dollars of revenue in a year? Would, is that considered a, a farm? Yeah, and so, and I think that's what we see. When you look on the cow calf side, and the number of cow calf herds in the U.S. is about seven hundred twenty-five thousand, but there is growth in really two segments: the really big ranches and the small ranches are steady to growing, the, the very small. But those in the middle, which is where your average would be, kind of compared back to this farm size, they're not, they're not really growing, but the average doesn't really represent the growth areas in the population, right? You throw everything together, there, there may, I bet, I have no idea without looking at these numbers, but I'll bet there's not as many 445 acre farms. I bet there's a lot of really big ones and a lot of really small ones. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think actually a 445-acre farm, at least in our part of the world, would be quite rare. I think I think that's what's part of the spread. So being careful, look at those numbers. But the trend is the farm size is increasing, meaning there's probably some efficiencies that have been gained there. And I, and I think one of the things we've talked about before is how do you make sure that it fits what you want to do? So is it that level of efficiency? And there are certainly, as you think about with cows, if I've got... 40 cows versus 50 cows, there's not a huge level of difference in the amount of equipment or things that I need or labor that I'm going to spend. So find out where those labor size units or equipment size units are, and that's how you make your adjustment. Because I think that's what you're getting at, Dustin, with the, some of the technologies and efficiencies. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And, and so I think some other things driving, again, kind of related back to this technology, Off, there's probably a lot more uh, opportunities for off-farm employment is also happening probably in the 1970s which is also driving some of those um those lines those figures there see you keep going back to the 70s you can't, you can't i know say, it's all about the say, 70s today. out of the 70s so <laughs> excellent well we'll follow up next week with some further discussion on some of the some of the research that's ongoing in that area and some of the funding next topic and and this is one that as we go through summer it's time to start thinking about pregnancy testing the cows. And we've talked before about the value of pregnancy testing, and, and it really can be 
a great tool, not just for managing and making sure that our expenses are efficiently allocated, go to cows that are pregnant through the winter, but also from a veterinary perspective, it can be a good diagnostic tool to find out if I've got any problems going on. But I, wa I want to talk a little bit about, let's say we've got a spring calving herd and their breeding is in May and June, July maybe. A lot of times we'll preg check those in October, November, December, when they may be at the second stage of gestation. Bob, you have advocated early pregnancy checking or checking them maybe when they're pretty early in gestation. Maybe first define it, and then let's talk about some of the pros and cons. Well, one of the reasons to think about doing an earlier pregnancy check is to be able to more accurately identify when cows became pregnant, not just whether or not they became pregnant, but actually when. And, and the earlier in pregnancy that you are, the more um, there are differences, meaning that a, a cow that is uh, 50 days pregnant will palpate or ultrasound very differently than a cow that's 80 days pregnant, so those 30 days. But then if I take that out farther, and a cow that's 130 days is going to be really, really similar to a cow that's 160 days. So 30 days difference in gestational age or how long the pregnancy has been going on is easy to pick up early in pregnancy and, and basically impossible to pick up late in pregnancy. So if it's important for you to identify those cows that became pregnant early, and probably that's most important with my young cows, my heifers, and maybe first calf heifers, that's a real reason to do it early so that I can identify those cows that pre got pregnant early, or maybe another way to say it, identify heifers that got pregnant late or first calf heifers that got pregnant late, and they may go on the cold list because we know that there's this momentum that cows that get pregnant early, early in life tend to stay there. Cows that get pregnant late in life, early, <laughs> they get- This is, this is clear as can Clear be. as can be. <laughs> so basically cows that get pregnant late tend to stay pregnant late every subsequent pregnancy. And so I want to I want to find those heifers that get pregnant early and, and keep them and kind of put some selection pressure on those that, that even though they got pregnant, they got pregnant late. So essentially, you're saying there is value in especially heifers that get bred early in the breeding season, calve early in the calving season. They tend to stay in the herd longer. They tend to be more productive as far as calf weaning weights over the long term. So if I can distinguish them, it's more than just are they pregnant or not. It's those that get pregnant early. Yeah. Exactly right. It's not just whether or not they became pregnant, but when they became pregnant. And there's some value in that, particularly in my young cows. So you keep, I keep hearing the word early, preg check early. And I heard the word 50 days, 80 days. Can you define mm -hmm. that? Well, for me personally, I can detect a pregnancy pretty routinely by 35, 40 days after they actually became pregnant. And with an ultrasound, that that's very doable. And so, but I need them to have, the herd to have a couple of opportunities. So usually you're talking about an early preg check occurring about 100 days after the breeding season started. So that the cows that got pregnant in the first 20 days would be 80 to 100 days pregnant. The second 20 days would be 60 to 80. And the least, or the third 20 days would be 40 to 60 days pregnant. And so I can identify each of those subsequent groups pretty accurately if I do it around that 100 days or so. And, and I would say anything out 150 days or so or less since the bulls were turned in would be considered an early preg check. So if you, and, went, if you went, just to put dates on that, back to our scenario, if the bulls went in May 15 
your early preg check is going to be the end of August. That's right. And you and you don't want to go too early. You certainly can go too early. With ultrasound, we can actually get down probably into the late 20-day pregnancy. Um, but there is a window there, usually before day 35, where there will be some natural embryo loss. And so there's not really an advantage to going. You don't want to jump the gun, right? So I, I usually tell people about 30 days when you pull the bulls is, is about early. That's when you would want to start your early preg checks. And it depends if you want to make the distinction on that first group. And so the scenario you said, I might want to keep those heifers that are bred early, but I may have also done something like AI and I want to evaluate how that program works, which means if I preg check early, I may end up saying that some of them are either open or unable to detect pregnant and I may have mm-hmm. to re-preg check some which most people don't like that's a, right. that's a downside but the upside may be if I preg check them early maybe I could cull some of those cows before so at the end of August before I needed to move to a different pasture or whatever Philip would that be beneficial for me um, it could be depends on depending on how late it, in your grazing season, you are depending on how many days that you're going to save in grazing and how, how many days of, I guess, like hay feeding that you're going to save, really. But I think a lot of it depends on which class of animals that you're looking at. So you think about cows, hopefully they have a calf on their side, and so you're not going to cull them and get rid of them until you're ready to wean that calf. You could wean that calf early, but then you've got a whole other management issue of managing a early weaned lightweight calf, and that's a different ball game than managing a seven, eight-month-old calf that you just weaned. Especially if there's only a handful of them, right? Yes. Especially if I'm only getting rid of a small percent of the herd then I've got to deal with extra calves, extra management. So that may not be my biggest benefit. It may be that I can better distinguish that early breeding season. So maybe this is a tool that I want to employ not on my whole herd, but maybe just the heifers. I think the heifers, because they don't have a calf at side. Uh, so a lot of times they're managed separately. They're like the ideal group to consider an early preg check. So again, so if you, like you said, you turn bulls out May the 15th or 1st of May, you know, you're talking about an, a preg check here at the end of August. That is a group where it makes a lot of sense. I like early preg check in the rest of the herd, but it doesn't fit as often. And, and I think you'd have to think more ser- seriously about the advantages and disadvantages past that heifer age. Well, and sometimes we do the cows when they're coming off summer pastures, which is typically not the end of August. Depending on where you are in the country, it may be much later than that that they're coming off grazing. Well, and I think it depends too on what your goal is. You know, if you have got, if you want to detect how far along they are in pregnancy and some of these later bred cows that you don't want necessarily to be part of your herd, if you know that they're late bred cows, you know they're pregnant, then you can sell them as a bred cow rather than as an open cow for you know probably about twice the the money that you would for an open cow and so that um that makes a big difference yeah absolutely and and i think that's true as well as the cattle market changes for cold cows seasonal cow prices are tend to be lowest when everyone is preg checking and they're a little bit better if you preg check a little bit early that's good economics there, Bob. Are I you know. saying supply and demand has something to do with it? I've heard that it does. I don't know. Dustin told me that. Dustin's over there shaking his head. <laughs> He's not even going to respond to that. The other one I wanted to address, and it, and it ties in a little bit to some of our topics. So we got a really good listener question. So the scenario is a commercial cow-calf herd, 
and selling the calves uh, after weaning, weaned on the farm for about 45 days, was thinking about raising their own replacement heifers and really wanted to compare and contrast two different technologies. So I want to make the best, this is my scenario, I want to make the best replacement heifer on my ranch. Should I use artificial insemination or embryo transfer? Brian, I'm going to go to you first and let you tell us what you would do and why. I think in this situation, well, let me make one point first. So the big limitation with artificial insemination is you're only controlling one half of the genetics, right? You have whatever maternal genetics you have for AI, you can select the bull and or a couple bulls and put that in your whole herd. So that's the limitation. And I think, but I still think for this situation, I think AI is still probably the better tool. And the reason being is this is a commercial herd. Although I do like embryo transfer and we can come back to that if you want. I think they're having a broader genetic base is probably more ideal in this situation. Well, I'm going to just throw out a couple of things of, of, this is a great success area where technology is really done well um, in as far as it works. So artificial insemination in beef cattle using frozen semen has been around a long time. Um, it really it depends on where you want to start it, but by the 1940s, we were getting pretty good at artificial insemination with frozen semen. And so the technology works, and in beef cattle, which is different than some other species, our, our success rate to a pregnancy is just as good as, as a live bull. And so those are a huge advantage are a huge success. Embryo transfer is pretty darn good too as far as our success of establishing a pregnancy using some of the technology Brian talked about where you know you know you use EPDs to understand the, the genetic value of the female as well as the male. And now honestly, and this isn't really brand new, but newer is in vitro fertilization. So all three of those technologies, artificial insemination, embryo transfer, and in vitro fertilization they work. They do what we say they will do. They'll get a high percentage of cows pregnant. Now, the difference is the cost per pregnancy. And artificial insemination is way less than embryo transfer, which is still less than in vitro fertilization, although that, that's a technology that's probably gaining a lot of use rapidly. Now, we're trying to make the ultimate replacement heifer here. Ideally, I would like her to be female. So do both of those technologies allow me to select this, the gender? Actually, they do. Um, using sexed sorted semen allows us to um, have almost perfect, it's not quite perfect, selection of either males or females. It does decrease my pregnancy percentage a little bit. So I'm not quite as, you know, I was bragging how artificial insemination is just as good as a live bull. Well, if you use sex sorted semen, it's not quite as good as a live bull. But it that's pretty good. And with our, um, even with our embryos, there, there was there's some technology we can either use sex sorted semen to get those embryos or we can actually do some testing of those embryos. So yeah, we can we can actually sec, select for pregnancies that are highly likely to be females. So Philip, I want to I want to address from your perspective on the some of the potential value differences. So Brian said with AI I'm only picking one side of the equation, with ET I'm picking both sides of the equation. What do you think in the performance of those heifers long term in the herd? How big a difference is that going to make? Well, I think you got to go back to what do you define as the best replacement heifer? And so what are those traits that you currently don't have? in your cow herd that you need to add to make quote unquote the best replacement heifer. 
And so if, let's take for example, you are really low in your heifer pregnancy rate or you are having a hard time getting first calf heifers rebred or, you know, whatever that is, then getting a some genetics in there that will improve that reproductive efficiency could be a very big deal. If you are already getting 90 plus percentage of your first calf heifers rebred and your yearling heifers bred, then adding that genetic trait to your herd is not going to add much value and the cost of doing ET for for that scenario is not going to be worth it. Yeah. And so, it, so it depends where you're starting. And, and I think for me personally, and like I said, I, I'm, I'm a fan of ET. I've worked in that industry a little bit. And I think when you, there's too many traits to pick from and you're narrowing it down to probably two or three. And I think there's the potential to miss two or three or 10, um, that you did. And so I, I, I just, I keep going back to, I think in this particular situation, AI is probably the better tool. Yeah. Depend, and, and like Philip said, depending on kind of where you start. Dustin, do you have a perspective from the... The only, the only thing I was going to add was, you know, the question, when you asked the question, I never heard anything about costs. And in the first five minutes of discussion, costs never came up in anywhere until Philip just mentioned it. And so that was going to be my one question back to you. If, if in that question, did the, not the listener, but did, or did the person who submitted that question, did they say anything about anything with expenses costs being a constraint uh, no and i and i would i i think costs are always a constraint at some level one of the things that i found interesting was this is focused on creating replacement heifers and if we do some simple math thinking about how big the herd is if you if you have a relatively typical replacement rate you're going to be replacing at 10 to 15 percent per year which means if i have a hundred head herd I'm deploying a, a pretty expensive, complex technology on 15 head, which right. means uh, even when Bob said, oh, there's a few percentage point differences. Well, a few percentage point differences, when you work that out, is she got pregnant or she didn't, right, on 15 head. So I could end up with a relatively low uptake, which could be really challenging. And even if you hired out for a third party to do, you overcome some of the technical issues, you still have to manage a relatively small group unless you change your heifer development each year. So my only suggestion would be for uh, that individuals to go out to you know their local land-grant university or go to agmanager.info, pull up a spreadsheet looking at uh, replace buying replacement heifers versus you know raising your own and look through all the cost side of that. Yeah, because that's a third option to bring to the table, right? So if I need to make better replacement heifers, and I'm not starting at the place I want to be, go buy some and you get a complete new infusion of genetics. And you may even be able to talk to somebody about custom raising them. There are some folks that do that. There's some folks that are really good at replacement heifer management and I let somebody else do it. When we look at uh, our friends in the swine industry, they, they have farms that produce gilts and then they have farms that are gonna produce pork. And so there's a, a complete separation there we often don't do that in the beef industry, and maybe there's times that that might make sense. Although all of us think that I can make my heifers just the way I want them, right? So certainly something to explore. Thanks for thanks for joining us today, and you guys had good answers to the to the questions. As always, if you have questions or topics you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.